Hello and welcome to the September podcast from Faber. My name is George Miller, and later in this program I'll be talking to John Carey about his new biography of Nobel laureate and Faber author William Golding. Golding, who was a schoolteacher for many years, carried out some unorthodox research into the behaviour of schoolboys when he was writing his bestseller, Lord of the Flies. Some of the boys whom he taught say they, that he would deliberately stir them up to sort of opposition, even that they, he, would, he would take them out to a prehistoric earthwork called Pigsby Rings and divide them up into battle groups and put them one against the other. And he told an American audience that, you know, they almost killed them, almost, there was almost murder. My first guest today is Roland Chambers. Roland is the author of The Last Englishman, The Double Life of Arthur Ransom, the first book to explore the complex, often quite murky relationship that Ransom had with the Soviet Union in the years following the revolution, long before he became the well-loved author of children's adventure stories in the Swallows and Amazon series. Ransom, born in Leeds in 1884, always felt himself to be an underdog and an outsider. After a disastrous first marriage and stuttering literary beginnings, he fled to Russia, where he reinvented himself as a journalist. His links with the new regime post-revolution became ever closer, and for a time he was the only Englishman capable of getting an audience with Lenin. Roland Chambers' biography presents much new information about Ransom's involvement with the Soviets, so I asked him how he had set about retracing the author's footsteps. Well, I started off with Ransom's diary. (laughs) I mean, having read his autobiography, I went to Leeds, where all his papers are in the Brotherton Library, and I started reading his diary and his writing. His handwriting is very, very small. And his handwriting gets smaller the more interesting the things he's <laughs> talking about. So I, I you know, I, I read his diary, and then I read all of his letters and his articles, and I, I pieced together the conversations that he'd been having with people, so far as they survived in his correspondence. And I compared those to what he'd written in his autobiography. And then I went to the British National Archive, and I looked at what everybody had had to say in there uh, uh, about Ransom, and there was plenty. And then I went to Russia, and in the company of two excellent research assistants, we plunged into the archives in Russia, and we found a great deal of interest there. We found out for the first time, really, about Ransom's family, his his in-laws. Uh, Ransom married Trotsky's secretary eventually, and I, I found out about her family. So... Yeah, all of these, I mean, basically his papers in Leeds, the British National Archive, and the archives in Russia gave me three, these were the three particular ways in which I I looked at at Ransom, and and by cross-referencing these things, I could reconstruct, you know, what what had happened in Russia. As you worked on the book, Raleigh, did you find your own idea of him shifting? Because as I was reading it, I was thinking... Is he really naive at this point, or is he is this he supremely calculating, or is he playing this off against that, or did he did he come and go? I mean, how did you get a fix on what you felt his motives to be at, at various stages throughout the, the narrative? Well, two things. First of all, Ransom had a genius for making friends. Second, one of the things that struck me most reading through his correspondence was a letter that he wrote to his mother. And his, his mother was by far his most regular correspondent. He told her at the height of the Red Terror in 1918 that the revolution had not altered him personally in any way. So here's a man who, following the war, 
he's 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 a reason. I mean, he makes some money as a writer, but he's he's pretty well. He's he's unknown really. He becomes a journalist in 1915 for the Daily News. As a journalist, he's fairly unknown. Following the revolution, he becomes one of a tiny, tiny number of British journalists who is. A, this is following the Bolshevik Revolution. There are two revolutions. Following what's known as the Bourgeois Revolution, Ransom started writing journalism that was more sympathetic to the left. Following the Bolshevik Revolution, he returned to Russia, where he became one of a tiny number of journalists that were permitted access to the Bolshevik leaders. So the question for me was, does Ransom really believe in the Bolshevik movement? Or is he simply pursuing what he sees as the most constructive way forward for his career as a journalist? As a journalist? Or is there some external pressure being placed on him which he can't resist? And it turns out that all three of these things are true. The first, does he believe in the Bolshevik movement? Well, perhaps he does and perhaps he doesn't. But the fact is that he falls in love with Trotsky's secretary. And Trotsky's secretary is effectively, you know, a Bolshevik. She is inextricably bound up with the Bolshevik party. Once he's in love with, with Trotsky's secretary, uh, Yevgenia Fatorovna Shalapina, it's highly unlikely that he's going to be able to report objectively. But the point is that his career <laughs> is assured because he has access to, to the party that no other journalist has. His closest friend at that time becomes Karl Roddick, who is the Bolshevik chief of propaganda. Now, it turns out that Karl Roddick actually introduced Yevgenia to Trotsky in the first place, or at least Karl Roddick's wife did. So Yevgenia owes her own career and her safety during the revolution, and actually it turns out the safety of her family, to Karl Roddick, who is this brilliant manipulator. So we have a situation where Ransom, I think romantically, is sympathetic towards the Bolsheviks because they're the absolute underdog. You know, and, and Ransom sort of feels romantically that he's an underdog. So he likes that. But on the other hand, you know, he's deeply romantically involved with, with Trotsky's secretary. And his closest friend is Karl Roddick. Now, these exert, obviously, an external influence over him, which he is reluctant to admit, but which is always there. And it becomes quite clear, as his life complicates, that there are certain moves, as it were, on the chessboard that aren't just, they're just not available to him. In terms of the promotion of his career, there's simply no doubt that by the middle, of, by sort of March 1918, he has no competition uh, in terms of British journalists reporting out of Russia. Uh, there's a guy called Morgan Phillips Price. But Morgan Phillips Price has become sort of self-declared Bolshevik. So he's kind of... <laughs> he's, he's, he's shot himself in the foot of it. Blown his cover. He's blown his cover. He's blown his cover. And in fact, Morgan Phillips Price is eventually sacked from the Manchester Guardian for editing a Bolshevik newspaper. So, so Ransom, you know, he's, he's writing for the New York Times. His stuff is being published by the New York Times. He's publishing in the Daily News. No other journalist is as extensively quoted. There's very little information coming out of Russia at all. So it's not just the newspapers that are interested in Ransom. It's also the Foreign Office that's interested in Ransom. And actually, it's in the middle of 1918 that the Ransom's recruited to MI6, which is itself a kind of, a, a, it, was, it was a pretty fascinating episode. <laughs> Somehow, he manages to keep walking this tightrope. He doesn't fall off. You know, you can see times when he wobbles, but he manages to keep pursuing this path where it's not quite clear who he's working for, where his true allegiances lie. He even gets arrested and is questioned, but doesn't ultimately come to grief over this, this very delicate course he's treading. 
It's very important to understand how little people in England understood what was happening in Russia. And it's very important to understand how little people in Russia understood what was happening in England. A man like Ransom, who could travel freely, relatively freely, between England and Russia, was an extraordinary rarity. Ransom, as I've said, felt himself to be an underdog. And in that respect, I think he was primed from a relatively early, a very early age to sympathise with the Bolsheviks. He was also, on the other hand, very much, as I said, a child of, of, of the Victorians and the Victorian establishment. And I think, you know, his notion of the underdog was very much like a fairy tale notion. So he was also, curiously, very sympathetic to the old Russia, the, what, what people like to call the real Russia after the revolution, the Russia of honest peasants and witches with iron teeth and the little Tsar, you know, and, and those wonderful stories that came out of, of that sort of folk culture. And if you look at Ransom's friends, and, and uh, some friends wanted nothing to do with him after the Bolshevik Revolution, but a lot of his friends actually stuck with him. Some of them were actually very right-wing, and some of them were very left-wing, and Ransom felt comfortable with all of them. And what this meant was that when, when Ransom came back from Russia, and it was quite clear, you know, that he had been vociferously supportive of the Bolsheviks, that he had denied the Red Terror, there was strong evidence to suggest that he'd been smuggling money out of Russia to fund the headquarters of the Bolshevik Party in, in Stockholm, that, in short, he had been working very, very closely with the Bolsheviks, and in all probability, when he was spying for the British, had actually also been working for the Russian uh, secret intelligence services. Uh, he came back to Britain, he was arrested by uh, Scotland Yard and taken to talk to Sir Basil Thompson, who was an extremely conservative man, and as a deputy prime minister of colonial Tonga had, had said that his closest friends were cannibals because uh, they were so much more, you know, reliable than these sort of, you know, town uh, edu- these town educated missionaries. He, he loathed as sort of, you know, lily overed types. They sat down together, and Ransom said, "Look, I'm not a Bolshevik. I'm not even a socialist. My godfather is Sir Arthur Ackland, former minister ed- of education under Gladstone. You know, a pillar of the establishment. I'm a liberal." And what I feel is that Britain's animosity towards the Bolsheviks, while understandable from an ideological point of view, is a waste of breath, that the Bolsheviks pose no threat to Britain, that the current British invasion of Russia, which was ongoing, the Allied intervention in Russia, military intervention in Russia, albeit at a fairly small scale, it is a waste of resources, it's a waste of men, it provides the Bolsheviks with a propaganda platform, it's appalling policy and you need to talk to people like me who have the ear of the Bolshevik government. You know, what do you think I'm doing for you guys in there? You know, how am I earning my bread with the foreign office? I'm getting close to these guys. You know, I've just been, you know, Ransom was the only British journalist to attend the inauguration of the, th- the Third International, which was Lenin's vehicle for spreading revolution abroad. Now, of course, you know, when Ransom was talking to the Soviet, he thought that the, the Third International was a wonderful thing. You know, he thought of himself as an internationalist. Well, he wasn't sure whether he was a revolutionary, but he thought of himself as an internationalist. But when he's talking to Basil Thompson, Sir Basil Thompson, spycatcher Thompson, head of the yard, he says, well, you know, I attended the Third International and uh, it was, it was sort of, uh, it was, uh, it was comic opera. It was very amusing. A complete waste of time. Uh, you've got nothing to worry about, you know. These these guys, you know, they're they're they're, they're comedy figures, really. They can't do us any harm. 
in fact, the more we attack them, the stronger we make them. So do you think that deep down he had principles or was he ultimately a shape-shifting opportunist who could, who was sort of dazzled by being in Lenin's company, but then when he went back to the British establishment, he could speak that language too? I mean, or do you think, do you think if you sort of scratch beneath that, that there was a sort of layer of, of principle or ideology that subtended everything else? I think it's a very, very difficult question to answer. If you read the memoir literature from Ransom's period, the number of reliable witnesses is extremely small. There's a book by Bertram Russell, written in 1920, after a visit to Russia, just called Bolshevism. And Russell is unequivocal in his condemnation of Bolshevism, and he's extremely lucid. He's very persuasive and convincing. He's also extremely rare. Most people who attacked Bolshevism in the press or, or in Britain, we would consider to be rabid jingoes. Yeah, I mean, Russell described himself as a communist at that time um, in, the, in that book, uh, and he said the communist experiment in Russia had failed. Most of the people who fell on either side, those on the right, you know, who wanted to just liquidate the Soviet and string them all up, I mean, you know, that, 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 that was the whites, uh, that was the white army, they just wanted to liquidate the Soviet. They were responsible for a vast number of atrocities. They were not a nice group of people. The Bolsheviks, obviously, were very extreme. And Ransom is in the middle. Now, does Ransom have any principles? At that time, I think that Ransom recognised that both the extreme left and the extreme right were extremely violent. And I think he, he felt that the extreme left had more stability to offer Russia than the extreme right. Now, in terms of whether Ransom possessed any personal principles, I think it's clear that Ransom did not commit absolutely to the Bolshevik ideology, and he certainly didn't commit to the white ideology. So what was Ransom's ideology? Well, I think Ransom's ideology was self-preservation. And whether you feel that that was an entirely selfish project or whether you feel that, that basically he had no other alternative at that time is a different question. I think that what Ransom lacked at that time was a certain ruthless capacity to investigate his own motives. I think Ransom was very keen on investigating other people's motives, but he very rarely looked inside himself. In fact, he explicitly said on several occasions that he was very reluctant to look inside himself and ask himself, why am I doing what I'm doing? By the time he was completing the Swallows and Amazon series, a million copies of those books had been sold. So he must have mm. he must have done very well mm. commercially. I wondered, is it possible for you to say whether you think that success and that reinvention brought him happiness? That's an excellent question. It it brought happiness to to millions of readers. I mean, eventually. I mean, I, I think there was the millionth reader was nineteen forty seven. So millions of people have, have loved Ransom's books. As to whether it brought him happiness personally, I think yes. It, uh, the, the knowledge that he had created a series of novels as successful as these was incredibly valuable to Ransom. And in fact, when he was on his deathbed, it was the only thing that would really kind of provoke any, any reaction from him. It, it, it became the focus of his whole life. By the same token, it caused him great unhappiness. 
because it was a very limited world he created. It was a very safe world, a very organised world, and it's obviously part of its enormous appeal. But Ransom simply excluded anything from that world, which would deprive him of the happiness that, that he felt. You know, it was his was his prize, really, not only for writing the books, but all the unhappiness that he had suffered before he wrote them. And amongst those people to be flung out of that particular Eden were the children who had originally inspired it, <laughs> particularly their father, who Ransom really came to hate. Uh, he felt that he was that Ernest Altini was taking this credit away from him. But also, and perhaps most, or certainly most sadly, his, his only child, Ransom felt that it was her duty to love him, her duty to accept what he gave her without asking questions, and particularly, I think, her duty to accept the kind of happiness that he had allotted for himself. And when she read Swallows and Amazons and told him that she thought it was tired and churned out, effectively, that she thought it was an artificial world and she didn't want to be part of it, he really never forgave her. Um, and, and this scene was repeated again and again through their lives. I mean, she eventually sold the library, which he felt had been stolen from him by his first wife. She sold that library, and, I mean, that was the end between them. But she sold it because <laughs> because he, he had given her no indication that, that he loved her. And she had actually offered this library to him, but offered to sell it to him mm. uh, because she wanted something from him. She wanted, I think, an apology. He never apologised, and he certainly wasn't going to pay for his books, so they were sold off in, in, in job lots uh, for next to nothing by booksellers, and, and, and that was the end between them. And she died a very, very lonely woman. Roland Chambers. The Last Englishman, The Double Life of Arthur Ransom, is out now in hardback. Also published this month is another literary life, John Carey's authorised biography of William Golding. As the subtitle puts it, the man who wrote Lord of the Flies. In fact, as this book makes clear, Golding was much more besides, and in fact came to resent the way in which his first novel eclipsed the rest of his output, even though its success, its sales can be measured in tens of millions, enabled him to give up teaching, a job which he hated. Robert Harris, reviewing this biography, called it learned, witty, insightful and humane, a model of its kind. The perfect invitation, in fact, to rediscover Golding's work, which has experienced a period of comparative neglect in the sixteen years since the author's death. The Golding who emerges from the pages of this book may be a flawed human being, full of fears and anxieties, prone to drinking. But, Carey argues, he was also an author of major and enduring stature. In order to write this biography, Carey was granted access to the Golding archive, so I began by asking him to tell me what he had found there. I'm very lucky in that... The archive, the family archive, was really sort of handed over to me to read in toto. And there is this journal which he kept every day from 1971 till he died, 22 years. I think I have never, well, I'm sure I've never had an experience like that of getting to know a writer so intimately and he's discussing writing the books you know the later books he, he is each day working at them and saying how impatient he is how disappointed he is how he's going to throw this away and change that astonishing to see art being as it were produced in front of your eyes and the private papers are astonishing not only the journal but also a work called Men, Women and Now where he wrote, he wrote it for Anne 
in the 1960s, about 65, I think, describing his relations with women right from the start, his mother right the way through. It was a kind of exploration of why he found it difficult to write about women. Then there's also an autobiography, actually, a frag fragmentary autobiography called Scenes from a Life. When he heard that there were people, including me, who wanted to write his biography, which he was not keen on, uh, he told Charles Monteith that um, he would write one himself, so he started Scenes from a Life. I know that because the letters that passed between him and Charles for 40 years are all in the Faber archive, hundreds of letters. And again, an amazing insight like they give into how he wrote, what he thought of what he wrote. He discussed it very frankly with Charles, who was brilliantly, I mean, both encouraging, discriminating, and when necessary, was a very firm editor. We'll probably come back to that relationship because I think it's a very interesting relationship that comes out in the biography. I, I just wanted to stay with his more intimate writings for a moment, though. And in those, he comes across as highly self-critical. He describes himself as a monster on occasions. He says things like he could imagine himself having been a Nazi if he'd lived in, in Nazi Germany. And he talks about his nightmares. But what do you think made him such an acutely self-critical character? It's hard to say. It began in the war, I think. It was being, I think, in an air raid on Portsmouth. He was in this appalling air raid, and he found himself, nice, taught me, asking himself which of his friends he would sacrifice, as it were, in theory, in order to be out of this air raid. Who in the world would he not sacrifice? And he end, in the end, he decides only Anne and David. David was born in 1940. He wouldn't sacrifice. That kind of self-examination seems to me to have become quite habitual later on. That's the first example of it. So you find him, I mean, the most, I find, searing you know, example of it is a manuscript that hasn't got a title, which he wrote about David. David had a terrible breakdown in 1969, age 29, and never entirely recovered, and I think Golding realised he wouldn't. So he set out to examine, in quite a short manuscript, his relations with David, what had gone wrong. He remembers that when David was born with a club foot, he felt sort of horror and kind of shame, as if he had joined the sort of disabled people. So, I mean, it's the kind of thing I'm sure people feel. I'm sure I would feel. But how many people would admit it to themselves and examine themselves like that? And then he remembers coming back from the Navy during the war on leave. I suppose David would be about four. And having a pillow fight with him. And how he deliberately, repeatedly knocked him over, meaning to hurt him. Again, you know... And fathers do feel jealous of sons, it's known. How many admit something like that to themselves? So I think the habit of self-examination... He does it again in... Um, the, the first book he wrote, 1947, was called Seahorse, about a holiday. He went on with Anne and the children. I mean, of course, David, uh, old enough to know what's happening, but Judy, just a baby... 
and he talks about how angry he gets with David and how he notices himself sort of deliberately getting angry, sort of escalating his anger deliberately. Very, very self-examining. So it becomes a, a habit. When he says, as you just noticed, um, that he would have been a Nazi, well, I don't personally believe he would have been a Nazi. He had an extremely keen critical intelligence. I don't think you needed that to be a Nazi. And anyway, he was an extremely sensitive man, an extremely fearful man. The, the word fear recurs again and again through the book. He seems to have spent a lot of his life afraid of, of various things within and without. Yeah, in the end, I concluded that fear was the most habitual emotion, really. On a scale from anxiety, which he felt all the time, anxiety about money, anxiety about writing. He was terrified of writing. Um, anxiety, of course, about what the critics would say. He was deeply, deeply hurt by bad reviews. But escalating into terror, often terror at the supernatural. He did believe, he says, that the dead walked, and he says that if he was in a room alone at night, even if the light was on, he was terrified at being alone, and he would rush upstairs and snuggle down beside Anne and hear her breathing and feel safe. This grown man, ex-naval officer, extremely courageous man, no doubt about that, if only have a look at his war record. But that was what he was like, and it went very deep. And it was part of his distrust of the rational, of logic. Ultimately, he didn't really believe in reason and logic. He believed in imagination, which was true for him. Another of his anxieties was about class. He, he went to Marlborough Grammar School, and he had Marlborough College as something to measure himself against. And he went to Brasenose College, Oxford, as the only grammar school student in an intake of, of more than 70. And one senses throughout the book this sort of distance from the establishment and, and sort of resentment about the establishment. Well, you know, I think that the class, the class consciousness is basic, and I think, as you say, it was, he says, that it was, it began in Marlborough with envy and hatred of these upper-class boys uh, was certainly accentuated at Oxford, where he had almost no friends, four friends. Oxford was basically public school. Grammar school boys were an anomaly. And he knew, I'm sure, how he was regarded. How he was regarded appears in the appointments committee notes. They interviewed him about jobs in his last year, and what the interviewer wrote was not quite a gentleman that he would not be fit, he would be fit only for day school teaching, i.e. not for public school. Well, this class consciousness, I think, does actually get into the novels quite early. Um, I think it's there in the relationship between Piggy and the other boys in Lord of the Flies. But once class is there, you don't regard a person as a person, but as a member of uh, upper, higher or lower caste, as it were. So I think, if you think of um, rites of passage and the relationship between Talbot and Collie, it almost seems to me that it's um, a replay of the class conflict he had felt at Marlborough, with Talbot, of course, representing the Marlborough College class, and Collie from the lower middle class, and Talbot finding that he is wrong wrong about Collie, that Collie 
whom he despised for his obsequiousness and his lower class manners is more sensitive than he is, more liberated than he is. There's been a, a great of media interest in the fact that your biography writes about an attempted rape, an alleged attempted rape, which Golding described of a 15-year-old girl in Marlborough when he was a, a student. Can you tell me what, what was going on and, and what you think the importance of this was in, in Golding's psyche? Yeah, Golding um, describes this in the work called Men, Women and Now that he wrote for his wife, for Anne, as a kind of confession and a kind of self-examination. And one of the factors in it, I think, is that he sees his earliest self up until the war as pretty abhorrent. Up until the war, he was, it's pretty clear, an atheist, he says so. He was followed his father. He was interested in science. He was an atheist. He was a materialist. He was quite brutal. He was keen on sport and so on. In the war, he says, he, had a, he underwent a religious convulsion, hence, of course, the Simon stuff in Lord of the Flies. Now, Dora Spencer, as I have called her, it's not her real name, of course, because I thought I couldn't possibly put her real name, though it is there in uh, Memory and Now, Dora was a girl at the school whom he thought very sexy. She clearly admired him because he was cultured and so on, and by the time they started to know each other, he was at Oxford in his first year. And in his first summer vacation from Oxford, he met her. She was 15. They went up onto Marlborough Common. They started to make love, or he started to make love to her, and she became frightened. I mean, she was prepared to sort of cuddle and kiss, but was frightened when he tried to touch her breasts and started to snivel and cry. And he shouted at her, you shut up, you hold your noise, you little bitch, and so on, I'm not going to hurt you. So she howled, and he says that he blew her nose, and they walked down the hill and parted in silence. And he calls it an attempted rape. He says, oh, I, was unhand I was so unhandy at rape. I think that he clearly was attempted rape, technically, but what impresses me is that he should call it so and blame himself so, and I think it's part of this self-examination process that he put himself through, and also a way of criticising what he had been like and what he had allowed himself to do in that first phase of his life. Lord of the Flies was his first published book, and I was struck by a quote you had in, in the biography where, you, where he says that authors don't take anything from previous authors that are apart from punctuation, essentially. He does say that. And I wondered where you thought that book came from. What fed that book for Golding? Several things, I think. One is that he wrote it as a kind of counter or anti-coral island. He says that it started, the idea started when he had been reading to the children. He and Anne were reading to the children at bedtime, the children had gone to bed, and he said, thinking of Coral Island, I bet I could write a novel about how children would really behave on an island, and Anne said, you get on with it. So that was one place that it began. It also surely, I think, began from observing children at um, Bishop Wordsworth's school, where he taught just before and then for years after the war. In one of the one of the unpublished novels called Short Measure, it's about the school which is clearly Bishop Wordsworth's, and there's a scene in it where he describes the 
boys in a particularly a sort of educationally subnormal class taunting and tormenting a woman teacher. It's a fantastic scene because of their their cunning and their mercilessness as they reduce her to tears. See, I think he knew that kind of thing. There's a story about how, again, told by one of his ex-students, about how the headmaster Happold once came into the class to quieten them down. They were misbehaving when Golding was there and said you know, how Golding was a remarkable man and they should be ashamed of themselves and so on. I think he had, he, he had formed a view of what lay within boys what capacity for cruelty they they had just from school teaching and observation and some of the boys whom he taught say they that he would deliberately stir them up to sort of opposition even that they he would he would take them out to a prehistoric earthwork called Figsby Rings and divide them up into battle groups and put them one against the other and he told an American audience that, you know, they almost killed him. Almost, there was almost murder. I don't know whether he's exaggerating. Of course, it's hard to tell. But, I mean, it's clear that he wouldn't have written Lord of the Flies if he hadn't been a schoolmaster for 15 years. I, I said I wanted to come back to the relationship with Charles Monteith, his editor at Faber. And I wondered how central you thought that relationship was to making him the writer that he, he turned out to be. I do really think it was it was central. He learned things from Charles that related, first of all, just to Lord of the Flies, but he learned other things that related to his writing as a whole. He learned to be economical. When you look at the first the surviving manuscript of Lord of the Flies and look at the typescript that Charles um, eventually got out of him, and indeed a typescript that's still got passages that Charles has crossed through. You can see, and Golding said later, you know, he taught him to be economical. He told him that you only had to imply and not to spell out. And I think that is traceable throughout his writing. What he wanted eventually was a kind of writing that would almost get beyond words to something that is more that closer to physical experience. That was a kind of ideal he had, and I think Charles helped him towards that. And that, I think he, that's in Pincher Martin, say, and the Inheritors gets towards that. Charles was also influential in that, as you know, what he did with Lord of the Flies was to cut out the supernatural element, to make the supernatural element implicit, just about, but not necessarily there. It may be as the book stands. You could read that book as a book about how religion is based on ignorance and fear. How, how religion is you know, develops from ignorance and fear is no longer a god in it as there was when Golding wrote it. And I think, therefore, you could say that Charles taught him also to be ambivalent in that way. And all the later novels are, even the paper men, it may not be that there is any supernatural experience even there but as Golding started out he wanted to proclaim what he he called a theophany he said to Charles Monteith surely there must be a theophany that is to say a showing forth of a god it was just what Monteith wanted to get rid of of course and interestingly I think right at the end of his life he was talking to an Indian audience audience of Indian students and he said, and it's the only time he ever said it, that he thought he should not have given way over Simon, 
Do you think, John, that Golding has had a lasting influence in the English novel, or is he too much sui generis to, to beget heirs? I think that what he's had a lasting influence on is English culture more. I think there are some novelists, not many, who write a thing that becomes part of our culture. For example, Defoe's Robinson Crusoe, say, Stevenson's Treasure Island, I suppose, Orwell's 1984, Huxley's Brave New World. You know, you might say to someone who, who had heard of Robinson Crusoe, who wrote it, and they wouldn't know. Similarly, you can say to people I've tried who wrote Lord of the Flies, and they don't actually know it's Golding, but Lord of the Flies has become you know, part of the culture, a reference point. Only a couple of days ago in The Guardian, I noticed there was an article about the security staff at the American embassy in Afghanistan who had been committing sort of various atrocities upon each other, which is said to be like Lord of the Flies. You know, I think what he's done is to create that cultural reference point it is quite rare I was speaking to John Kerry about William Golding, the man who wrote Lord of the Flies, available now in hardback and you'll find full details of all Golding's books published by Faber on the website at faber.co.uk That's all for this edition of the Faber Podcast, but I hope you'll join me again next month for more author interviews. Until then, thank you for listening and goodbye.